are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody, or afternoon and whatever time it is for you. I'm glad that you could join us here for our Thursday afternoon, at least on the West Coast of the United States, our Thursday afternoon a question and answer time. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. I'm a pastor, I'm an author, I'm a Bible commentator. Some people are familiar with my work online. I have a verse-by-verse commentary throughout the entire Bible that's available absolutely free at my own website, EnduringWord.com, but then also at a great uh, website for Bible study resources, Blue Letter Bible, blb.org. And what we do on a Thursday afternoon is we get together and I give an hour or so of my time to answer whatever questions you have about the Bible or about the Christian life. I want to give a special welcome today, not only to our TWR360 audience, we're very happy with our partnership with TWR360 and our privilege of being able to work with that great ministry. Uh, They use their website to distribute this live question and answer time. And we're very grateful for that. So God bless all the great folks at TWR360, Transworld Radio, and then 360 denotes their um, online presence, their great online ministry. But I also want to welcome uh, any Facebook Live audience that we have. Uh, Today, for the first time on a Thursday afternoon question and answer time, we're also streaming to Facebook. So again, I give a hearty welcome to our audience, whether you come from the YouTube channel whether you come from TWR360, whether you're coming from Facebook channel, we're very pleased that you could join us here this afternoon. We begin like this. I begin with a lead question. Sometimes the lead question comes in by email, something on social media. This particular lead question that I'm going to deal with today was something left over from last week, a good question that we didn't have time to get to last week, so I'm going to deal with it as a lead question today. Uh, And then after the lead question, we take your questions that come in on the side chat or as comments on the whole question feed. And and this is how it works. You just write in your comment, write in your question, and our moderator, Devin, will go over it. Uh, He'll see if it's something that might be uh, of interest to our broader audience, and then he passes them on to me. So we're grateful for the work of Devin and Andrea and our whole Enduring Word family that works together to make this Thursday afternoon possible for you. Today, for our lead question, I'm going to wade into a question basically having to do with free will and predestination. The question comes from Bill, and again, he asked this question last week in a side chat. Uh, We weren't able to get to it then, uh, but I'm going to answer it now. Bill asked last week, How do you reconcile free will with predestination as described in the Bible? Well, Bill, that's a great question. And of course, it's a question that's caused a lot of contention among God's people. There's a great, uh, if you will, difference of opinion. Uh, Those who tend more towards a Reformed or Calvinistic theology, those who um, tend towards more an Arminian, or perhaps sometimes it's called a provisionist. There's a lot of different titles for it. Uh, Then there's also Christians uh, of different theological traditions that aren't even categorized by those things, those um, uh, among the Eastern Orthodox and then other traditions as well. So your question, though, to me 
even though it's a big one, even though it's a challenging one, let me give you my understanding of it. And, and I believe that we have two principles at work here. So here's the first principle. Then I'm going to give a few passages of scripture that talk about this principle. The first principle is this. God is in control and all things happen according to the good pleasure of his will, according to the counsel of his will. This is true both in what God directly performs and in what God allows. So maybe the idea isn't that God directly performs everything, but certainly God allows everything and he allows it according to the good pleasure of his will, according to the counsel of his will. That's all tied up with the idea of predestination. God has a plan. God's plan will not be defeated. God's carrying out his plan. And uh, God's plan involves both what God performs and what God allows. For some, you know, scriptural basis for this, we can go to passages such as Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Then also Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So again, we see in these passages here that it's really just a matter of, of, of the, the uh, will of God being predestined and him working out his eternal plan. We have an additional verse um, we could look at here. Well, oh, those would just be the two verses that we look at immediately. Uh, again, the, the idea is here is that God definitely has a predestined plan. He is working all things according to the good pleasure of his will. And then as Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. God is in control. That's principle one. Now here's principle two. God speaks to us and deals with people as people with real choice, not as pre-programmed robots. From how the Bible speaks to us, we have every reason to believe that our choices matter, that we have what I would call real choice. Let's go over just a couple scriptures having to do with that. Uh, we have here uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice, Peter made an appeal to his audience there on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, repent and let everyone be baptized. He told them to do something. He didn't tell them just to feel something or, or, or God would do it for you. He told them to do something. Um, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Again, what a wonderful verse just telling us of the openness of God's invitation. Come, he says. He says, don't wait, God says, so to speak. He didn't say, don't wait for me to make you to come. Just come. You come. He's appealing to people as those who have the ability to choose, the, the ability to, to have a real choice in the matter. And then I'll just give you one more. I mean, again, we could go on and on with such verses, but one more. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. 
uh, when he had called his disciples to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now they're just Jesus giving a simple instruction of what it is to be his follower, but he didn't give any kind of implication that God's going to make you follow him. If you desire to come after me, this is what's involved. Do you really want to follow me? So again, we have these two principles at work. Number one, God is in control and all things happen according to the good pleasure of his will, according to the counsel of his will. And number two, God speaks to us and he deals with people as people with real choice, not as pre-programmed robots. Now, I understand that our more Calvinistic or Reformed brethren will say, uh, David, you use the example of Acts chapter 2. They can only repent because God leads them to repent. Or they may say, David, you referred to Re- Revelation chapter 22. They can only come because God leads them to come. Or they'll say, Listen, David, the people that Jesus spoke to in Mark chapter 8 can only desire to come after Jesus because God gives them the desire to come. Now, let me just say for the moment, I I won't contest any of that. I I will not contest at all the idea that God must work in a person before they can repent, before they can come to Jesus, before they can desire to follow him. I don't contest that one bit. Nevertheless, I think both the Calvinist and the Arminian would agree, God doesn't repent for a person. God may give the gift of repentance, but he's not going to repent for somebody. They must do it. God may draw a person, but they must still come. God may give somebody, if you want to call it the gift of faith or the ability to believe, but he won't believe for them. They must believe. At some point, human response, faith, trusting in, relying on, clinging to Jesus is essential. Now, I know there's a lot of debate among camps. At what point? Because they would agree at some point, human response is essential. It just matters at which point. But I want you to notice something. In the question that Bill asked, he asked about free will. And I don't think I've used the phrase free will at all except in phrasing Bill's question. You see, I responded not by talking about free will. I responded by talking about real choice. And I'll give you something just from my own personal understanding, my own personal preference. I don't like the phrase free will, and I personally try to avoid it. There are many ways in which our will is not free. Our will can be bound in many ways. So for me, the idea of a completely free will is questionable, but the concept of real choice is essential. And I think that many times when people use the phrase free will, that's what they actually mean. They just mean that we have a real choice. You see, what I want to know from our Reformed or Calvinistic brethren is this. Forget about the idea of free will. Tell me if men and women have real choice. Tell me if people can choose to accept or choose to reject Jesus Christ and the good news. Now, if human beings don't have real choice, 
If someone believes that God's predestination means that we are programmed in some way, that we're robots in some way, well, then they should just be upfront about it and tell us. But I I don't think that's what they mean, and that's certainly not how I take it. So we're left with these two principles. Let me remind you of them. Principle number one, God is in control and all things happen according to the good pleasure of his will, according to the counsel of his will. This is true both in what God directly performs and in what God allows. That's principle one. Principle two, God speaks to us and deals with people with real choice, not as pre-programmed robots. From how the Bible speaks to us, we have every reason to believe that our choices matter. Now, if I could, let me kind of get back to George's question. He asked me, David, how do you reconcile these things? Bill's question was, how do these reconcile? And Bill, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't try to reconcile them. I just simply don't. I hold them as what I might call complementary truths. And I believe that God, number one, works all things according to his will. And number two, that he made human beings in his image who have the capability and the responsibility of making real, meaningful choices. I don't see a need to reconcile those two positions. They're both true, and they both just fit in. Someone once asked the famous preacher of Victorian England, Charles Spurgeon, how do you reconcile predestination and free will? Spurgeon answered like this, why do I need to reconcile friends? You see, Spurgeon believed that predestination and free will, even though I would phrase it predestination and real choice, Spurgeon thought these don't battle against each other. They are complementary truths in the unfolding plan of God. Friends, in God's great sovereign plan, his predestination and the real choices of human beings work together in the accomplishing of his plan. If my understanding of God's sovereign plan cancels out the truth of our having real choice, then something's gone wrong. If my understanding of our having real choices cancels out the truth of God's sovereign plan, then something went wrong. We can avoid both those errors. And Bill or anybody else is interested, I'll be honest, this works for me. I'm okay with recognizing the truth of both principles and then leaving it up to God to work out the details. I don't feel that I must sacrifice one for the sake of the other. Now, I'm sympathetic to those who feel more bothered, maybe even tortured by this issue, but I'll be honest with you, that's just not where I'm at. I'm fine with both of those principles standing side by side. All right, that's it for our lead question. I hope that was helpful for you, Bill. Now, let me go on to the questions that come in from the comments or the live chat. Again, I want to take this opportunity to welcome our YouTube audience, our TWR360 audience, and our Facebook Live audience. So pleased that you could join us today. Write your question in the side chat or the comments. Uh, That'll go to our moderator named Devin, 
and Devin will pass on the questions that, frankly, he thinks would be of interest to most, uh, to the greatest proportion of audience. And if your question doesn't get answered, don't despair. <laughs> we keep a record of the live chats in these formats, and we are able to go back and sometimes answer ones that we missed or that we had to pass over, just as I did with the lead question for this week. Okay, uh, looking at the questions now, here comes a question from YouTube, from Anahui who asks, how would I know if splitting the tithes and offerings between two places for God would be acceptable? Are there any scriptures to show me? Okay, Anahui, this is a great question. And let me just um, say, God bless you for being a giver. God bless you for a tithing and offering. I think this is glorifying to God and it reflects the heart of God for his people that we should be a generous people, that we should be givers. God is a giver. We should be givers. Now, your question is, how do I know how to distribute my tithes and offerings, that with which I want to show my generosity? Well, Anahu, the, the scriptures you're talking about would really be contained in passage like First and Second Corinthians and in passages in the pastoral epistles. I'm thinking particularly of 1 Timothy, where Paul talks about how those who labor in God's word should be um, receive double honor, that they should receive double, they, they should be compensated and compensated um, in a particular way, just in a special way. Obviously, in the early church, they didn't have a lot of resources to support pastors and teachers and such of the congregation. But as much as they were able to, they were able to regard that as a priority for the church. So, I take from this, and especially uh, from passages like uh, in First and Second Timothy, where Paul says, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. Those who labor in the word should be rewarded by those who receive the word. Um, there's many scriptures to that effect in the New Testament. So I would say this, your priority in your giving should be to those, to your congregation, where the pastor ministers the word to you. Uh, perhaps also you could have in mind other ministries that bring God's word to you in some way or another. But the priority should be your local church and those ministries that um, bring you God's word. Now, the principle that some Christians have done is they said, I'm going to bring my tithe, my 10%. That'll go to my local church. What I give beyond my tithe, my offering, so to speak, that I may distribute to other ministries, uh, to uh, ministries that help the poor, that help the needy, that do good in the world in Jesus' name, uh, the afflicted, the disadvantaged. Those are wonderful things for believers to give unto. But I think there is a clear scriptural priority. It doesn't tell us exactly what. So I, I think I would leave it up to the guidance of the Holy Spirit for you in particular to know what it should be. But it should be a priority upon uh, the local church where you are fed the word of God by your pastor. And perhaps if you wanted to include in that by extension, other ministries or outlets where you would also receive the word of God and be fed. Um, so I can't give you an exact number or proportion, but just point you to the passages in 1 Corinthians, oh goodness, I'd have to look it up. 
the passages. Maybe we can include this in the show description later on, these specific passages, but these passages having to do with giving. Thank you so much, Anahui. Thank you for that question. Junebug from YouTube asks, uh, God tells us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The mind and strength uh, part seems clear to me, but what's the difference between our heart and our soul in this instance? Junebug, that's a great question. Uh, We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I I think what you have to do is take that as an entirety, and what God's telling us to do is to love him with our entire being. I don't think the reason for listing the different categories was so that we could separate those categories and kind of have a different love for God in our heart than in our soul, than in our mind, than in our strength. No, the idea is that we should just give an entire love to God for us, from the entire person, from the entire being. I really don't think that Jesus's uh, purpose or, or, or intention in that at all was to make a division between those things and sort of get you to focus a different kind or a different proportion of love to different things. The, the, the package together just speaks to us very powerfully. We're to love God and honor Jesus Christ with everything that we are and everything that we have. Again, you, you described it well, mind, strength, soul, uh, heart, all of those things together. Okay, let me go to the next question here uh, from YouTube uh, with Angelina. Or Angelia, excuse me, I wanted to make sure I get your name right. Angelia says, uh, are our lives in God's hands always? Can the enemy take our lives before our appointed time if we depart from God's will for our life? Uh, Angelia, let me just say two things. First of all, The devil does not hold the keys to life and death. Now, I'm not saying that the devil is unable with permission to God to be the agent of somebody's death. The Bible tells us that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I would say that the devil is not the ultimate uh, power over life and death. God is. And this is what I want you to consider, uh, Angelia, is that uh, God is sovereign over life and death. So because God has that power, we believe that uh, it's impossible for the enemy to do that in the life of a believer. Uh, the, the, The devil has no authority over the life of a believer in any sense. Now, perhaps God would allow, uh, under the leash, so to speak, uh, I mean, we don't believe that the devil's on a literal leash, but um, uh, symbolically speaking, uh, God allows the devil to do what he can and cannot do. And so it may be that God allows the devil to be the agency by which an unbeliever may meet their death. But it only happened under the um, allowance of God. So, um, I do not believe, and I'll speak in regard to believers, that the enemy can take our lives before our appointed time if we depart from God's will for our life. I don't think it works that way for the believer. 
The power of life and death is in God. It's not in the devil. And anything that the devil may be able to do in his terrible work of stealing, killing, and destroying, he does only under the allowance of God in a particular situation. Okay, uh, next one comes from uh, Andrea. Andrea says, my 55-year-old believer friend, I assume this question comes from YouTube, uh, my 55-year-old believer friend wants to marry her live-in boyfriend of eight years. He's a non-believer. Her pastor told her that it's better to marry than to fornicate. She she trusts her pastor implicitly. How do I respond? Well, Andrea, this is difficult because what you have is you have a situation where um, you have a believer in significant compromise and there's making things better and there's work towards making things best. Um, I also have some questions that would be more suited to her particular life situation. I believe that there have been some situations, especially if younger children are involved, where it would be better for a believer to marry an unbeliever that they're living with and provide a better and more proper home even though it's not good or it's not best that they would marry an unbeliever. From describing the age of your friend, uh, it may be that there's no young children involved, uh, that this may be only out of convenience. Um, I would have to know more about the particular situation. But certainly the best thing would be for her to only marry another believer in the way that the Bible speaks. By the way, I, I need to speak to this sometimes. You know, we we understand that the Bible says that a Christian, a believer, should marry only another believer. But it's not because um, those who have yet to believe upon Jesus Christ are all filthy, terrible marriage candidates, and there could never be any happiness or peace. That's not the reason why. Look, there are some people who are not yet believers who would in fact make a good husband or wife for somebody who's a believer. But this is why it's not because they're they're automatically disqualified because they're all rotten, terrible people and a Christian should never have anything to do with somebody who does not yet believe. No, that's not the reason. The reason is because if someone is truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's what we mean by being a believer, don't we? We mean somebody who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. If someone is truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, then the ultimate purpose and goal of their life is following Jesus and honoring him. How can they really be joined together with someone who does not have the same life purpose at all? So Andrea, um, not knowing more of the details of the situation, and that's why these things really have to be... um, The biblical principles need to be understood, but they need to be applied in ways full of wisdom and full of awareness of the particular situations. Um, It would seem probably best for your friend not to marry this person and uh, for your friend to marry someone who is a believer. I know that's far easier said than done. I can say that very flippantly. Um, 
But what you have here is you have two sins at work, honestly. You have the sin of fornication or sexual immorality. That's living with someone whom she's not made the commitment of marriage to. And you have the sin of marrying an unbeliever. It, it is not always easy, frankly, to know which sin should be chosen in this. The, obviously, the better choice is to choose neither and to live in a way that would honor God. It would take a radical obedience, but this is what God calls his people to, if we will be true disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, Andrea, I'm going to try to remember to pray for your friend, because uh, it's a big thing that she's going through, and I pray that God would give her wisdom to really honor Jesus with her life. Next question comes from YouTube, uh, from Joyce, uh, who asks, if trespasses and sins are the same thing? Joyce, let me answer this question quickly for you. Just I can answer that question by saying, kind of, kind of. Um, essentially, they're the same thing, but yet the wording of it indicates a slight distinction. A trespass is to go over a boundary. You know, we talk about people trespassing on property that they shouldn't, you know, go on to. Trespassing is going over a boundary that you should not go over. A line is drawn and you cross it. Sin, technically, is to miss the mark. Uh, there's a target and you miss it and you've missed the mark. So they're, they're very similar. The same action could be described as both going over a boundary and missing a mark. So there's a slight distinction, but often the scripture uses these as general terms without any emphasis on a specific aspect to it, um, just to describe sin and its many effects. I hope that's helpful for you there, Joyce. Um, next question comes from YouTube viewer uh, Tunnelbana, uh, our subway viewer from Sweden, who asks, is Charles Darwin's scientific theory of evolution a lie from Satan? Does science lie to us about macroevolution and monkeys that became humans? Okay, well, let me be specific here. And I appreciate in your question that you made the distinction about macroevolution. Because the principle of evolution is true. Um, biological organisms on earth evolve. That's unquestioned. The difference is between what is sometimes termed, and I don't even know if these terms are current, maybe they're long passe. So whatever the proper equivalent term is in the modern day, just use that. But there's a difference between what could be called microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution is where uh, dogs adapt uh, sometimes through natural selection, sometimes through purposeful selection, guided selection, but dogs adapt into all different kinds of breeds and aspects of dogs. Um, that's microevolution. Then there's macroevolution, which would be something like, uh, you know, to use a silly hypothetical, uh, an amoeba becoming a dog, becoming a human microevolution is true and is glorious and should be studied to the highest extent. Macroevolution uh, really has no concrete scientific 
evidence behind it. To my knowledge, friends, look, I'm, I'm trying to be very transparent with you. I'm a pastor. I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a Bible commentator. I, I'm not a scientist. But if there is um, persuasive evidence for macroevolution, for one species actually becoming another species, for one kind of organism, for, from a reptile becoming a mammal, then I, I'm unaware of it, and it's certainly not widely publicized, if there is such evidence for that. So there are aspects of Charles Darwin's work and evolutionary theory which are understood and true. But the aspect of macroevolution, that human beings evolved from, you know, single cell organisms over a process of thousands of years without a God involved at all. Friends, that is a lie from Satan. And it's been a very... I don't know what the right word is, damaging, troublesome lie. Damaging and troublesome because uh, at one time, human beings, uh, at least in the Western world, lived with a vital awareness that they were creatures and had some responsibility towards a creator. That seems to be completely absent in the present day. And our world is not the better for it. So I hope that answers the question there for you. I, I don't believe that macroevolution is true at all. Um, I know that there are people who try to propose the idea of theistic evolution. Uh, that is very troublesome to me from a biblical perspective. I don't buy into it at all. But again, we're not trying to express any difficulty with the concept of microevolution or just simply what happens through natural selection. Thank you for that question. Let me go to a Facebook question from Andrea, who asks, any suggestions for a good Bible reading plan or devotional for the new year? Well, Andrea, that's a great question. I would just challenge our viewers here uh, with something that I've often said. If you want to do something good in your reading through the Bible, um, Get a notebook. Maybe use a journal. Maybe you just use a notebook, but get something with plenty of pages in it. And begin going through the Bible chapter by chapter. Um, I think it's good. Start at Genesis. Go all the way through to Revelation. And I'm not going to tell you how much to read every day. I'm not going to tell you how many chapters to read. I'm not going to tell you to do it within a year, but I will tell you this. Start, and if you want to start on January 1st, that's a great day to do it. Start reading through the Bible chapter by chapter and write a one-sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. Write it with your own hand. Write, well, okay, look, many of you will key it into a keypad or whatever, but write it yourself. A one-sentence summary of every book of the Bible, of every chapter of the Bible. That will make you read the Bible thinking. You'll think, hey, I got to write a one-sentence summary of this chapter. What's this chapter about? It's kind of scary how often we read our Bibles on kind of automatic pilot, where when we're done, we could tell you almost nothing of what we just read. So my uh, constant recommendation to people in their Bible reading is read through the Bible 
a chapter at a time, and do a one-sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. Hey, and when that's done, you're going to have a really cool notebook. That's why I say you should write it out with your hand, because you want a cool notebook when you're done. But, you know, look, if you want to key it into your phone or whatever, it's not nearly as satisfying, but that's up to you. One-sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. Thank you for that question there, Andrea. Now we have another question that comes from Facebook from Chuck. Chuck asks, how do you get victory over a besetting sin? Chuck, that's a great question. And really, it's a discipleship question. Whereas if I were to give you a a, a really detailed answer, it would mean uh, sitting down with somebody over a cup of coffee and talking maybe for a couple hours and doing some deep probing about where things are at in your life. But I can give you some general principles. First of all, number one, um, give attention to the basics of the Christian life. Reading your Bible, regular prayer, um, getting together with other Christians, uh, giving your uh, time in some way to serve God and his people. Give attention to those basics in the Christian life, even if you're still struggling with that sin. You need spiritual strength in your life. And I believe that God has ways appointed that he builds spiritual strength in our life. And part of that has to do with just the basic Christian practices of discipleship. Spending time in God's word, not just reading it on automatic pilot, but really thinking about it and meditating upon it. Scripture memorization. Remember that phrase from Psalm 119, Your word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. Scripture memorization is great. Prayer. So give attention to the basics of the Christian life, number one. Number two, make sure you're putting a genuine focus upon Jesus Christ in your life. I have experienced for myself, but I've seen it in many other people as well. People who are troubled by a besetting sin, and they are so troubled by their besetting sin that they put far more focus upon their besetting sin and a desire for victory than they put upon Jesus himself. Friends, we should not be in that place. Keep a focus on Jesus. I'm not saying give no attention to besetting sin. Okay, God forbid. But make sure that you're pursuing after Jesus. That you're relying as much as you're able on the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Give attention to the basics. Put a focus upon Jesus. And then in some cases, it's wise to make yourself accountable to another brother. Or if it's a sister, to another sister. In Christ, of course. I I, I say this accountability because... um, Accountability is not a magic bullet. It's not a magic solution because accountability only works as much as you want it to work. As much as you're willing to be honest and open and transparent about it. And it also depends somewhat upon the capability of the person who's supposed to be holding you accountable. So uh, accountability with another person is good, but I think it's even more important to give attention to the basics of the Christian life, to keep a focus on Jesus, and then 
have some accountability. I'll give you one other solution here, one other path to seek after, Chuck. I spoke of the um, basics of the Christian life, the Christian experience. Um, Don't neglect fasting in the midst of this. Chuck, you know, um, fasting is a way that we help subdue the strength and the power of our flesh. It's a way that we tell ourselves no for the glory of God. Don't neglect that as a way to find increasing strength uh, in the battle against sin. Hope that's been helpful for you, Chuck. Let me go into another question uh, from our YouTube audience, from Joel. Let me say one more time before I do that, that I want to welcome our audience from YouTube, from Facebook Live, and from TWR360. So pleased that you could join us here this afternoon. Joel asks this question. Does the Bible ever tell Jews not to be circumcised and to observe the Jewish feasts? I know it says Gentiles don't have to live like Jews, but should Jewish people still follow Jewish traditions and feasts? Joel, they are certainly, um, they certainly have the liberty to follow Jewish traditions or feasts. They just should not feel that it makes them any more right with God. If a Jewish person wants to undergo, uh, for the sake of their male children, the uh, ritual of circumcision, they have perfect liberty to do it, just don't think it makes you any more right with God. Uh, They have perfect liberty to keep the feasts, especially as they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Passover, tabernacles, all the rest of them. Just don't feel that it makes you, or think, I should say, that it makes you any more right with Jesus Christ. That's really what we're talking about here, Joel, is that simple truth that um, we are made right, not by, right with God. We are put in right relationship with God, not by the things we do, whether they're good moral works, ceremonies, traditions, but by who Jesus is, his perfect obedience for us, and what he did for us, especially at the cross. So that's how I would explain it, Joel. They have freedom to do as they please. If they want to, wonderful, praise the Lord. But it just doesn't make them any more right with God. Okay, another question from our YouTube audience. Uh, Maggie asks the question, uh, can you please tell me why wisdom is called she in Proverbs? I thought the Holy Spirit is wisdom. This is very confusing. Maggie, I don't take that as a big deal. Um, w- wisdom is honored as a she uh, just because, um, let's, let's face it, women often reflect a lot of wisdom, but it, it's not being used for the person of God. So wisdom here is being personified, such as somebody might personify faith, uh, such as somebody might personify um goodness or something like that. Wisdom is being personified, but it doesn't mean that it's saying that God is lady wisdom. Uh, It's simply a personification of a biblical virtue and pursuit. So it it really doesn't reflect back to the Holy Spirit being uh, a woman or any other member of the Godhead. It's simply personifying it. 
and, and personifying as a woman because the idea of lady wisdom, uh, wisdom that teaches us, wisdom teaches us. Look, for, for many, many people, wisdom, real wisdom, was first imparted to them by their mother. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful and touching figure to give to wisdom, to personify it as a woman. Uh, but again, it just doesn't reflect. The, it, nowhere in the Bible is saying that God is equal to wisdom, that, that God is the lady wisdom personified in the book of Proverbs. So Maggie, I, I hope that that answer uh, is helpful to you in some way. Okay, uh, Jeremy asked a question. I don't know if this comes from YouTube or Facebook, but Jeremy asked this question. My question is about Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. It refers to the families of David, Nathan, and Levi mourning. Is this representative of Jesus being our king, prophet, and priest? Um, let me just say, uh, Jeremy, yes, absolutely, this is prophetic of Jesus. When it says in Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse 10, then they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Absolutely. That is prophetically referring to the nation of Israel coming in repentance. Now, like many prophecies, it could have a near fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment, a lesser fulfillment and a greater fulfillment. But the ultimate and greater fulfillment of this is what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11, uh, Israel eventually coming to faith in their Messiah. It's what Jesus said uh, when he looked over Jerusalem at the triumphal entry or on the same day as the triumphal entry. He said, um, that uh, I will not return to you until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there will come a time when Israel recognizes their Messiah for who he is, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And so, Jeremy, yes, this is speaking prophetically of Jesus. Uh, I would recommend to you my commentary in Zechariah chapter 12. Again, I have a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the entire Bible. And, uh, you can just go to it at EnduringWord.com, or you can look it up at Blue Letter Bible, blb.org, and you can take a look at my commentary on Zechariah chapter 12, and that'll probably give you a more detailed explanation of what we're talking about. Okay, Rose asks a question. Is death a form of healing when someone dies? Well, Rose, um, I would say for the believer, yes. You know, when the believer passes from this life to the next, they are going to heaven where there's no more tears, where there's no more pain, no more suffering, uh, no more weakness of body. We are resurrected in Jesus Christ. That's healing. I'll never forget what I read in one of these old Puritan commentators. I think maybe it was John Trapp. He talked about a man who was on his deathbed and he was in some pain. And uh, his family's around him, and, and they asked him, well, how do you feel? And this is what he said. He said, almost better. And he died soon after that. You know, man, that's grace. That's the kind of grace I hope to have if I'm ever on a deathbed in those circumstances. Just be able to say, listen, uh, I'm hurting right now, but I'm almost better. 
the solution to my problem is almost at hand, and that's resurrection. I, I believe that God's salvation for us and to us is given to us body, soul, and spirit. And it will ultimately be completed at the resurrection, where we will have a body that will never, ever again know weakness or uh, sickness or disease of any kind. That is ultimate healing. We are grateful that in the here and now, God does wonderful works of healing. We're grateful for that. And we um, long for God to do more of those and not less of them. But we know that ultimately speaking, the problem of weakness and sickness and pain in this body is ultimately solved by resurrection. Thank you, Rose, for that question. Peter asks a question. Is it biblical to decree and declare and to redeem the earth or the place we intend to be? Um, Peter, I, I, I'm not big on this. I think that this authentic, I would have to speak to each individual case. Could it be that God had made a specific promise to a believer that they were able to discern by the Holy Spirit and they stand on that promise and it even stands as strong as saying, I declare and decree? Um, it, it could. So I, I don't want to exclude the possibility, but I'll be very honest with you, Peter. Uh, it seems like a lot of this to me is just arrogance from Christians or, or ignorance. Um, it's just big talk. They, they really don't have a promise or an assurance from God. We can rest with great confidence on the promises of God. Those promises come to us primarily in and through his word. I do believe that God can, by the Holy Spirit, communicate a promise to his people today. But that is, um, you know, that's subjective. And I, I think Christians should be careful. Of it. We, we do not have dominion over the entire earth as individuals in the sense that some people seem to think that we do. I'll just leave it at that. Next question comes from uh, YouTube, from Luciana. Luciana asks, could you recommend a book to read this new year, please? Maybe something you've read recently that you really enjoyed. All right, I'm going to look back here. On, okay, um, Luciana, I'm going to recommend a book to you, and it's an old book. I'm showing you the old cover. Uh, this is an old hardback edition I have of it. Now it's available in paperback, but look for this book. The Jesus Style by Gail Irwin. Gail is a good friend and a godly man. And let me tell you, this is an outstanding book. It's easy to read. Gail has a wonderful conversational style. But I recommend strongly that you read this book. It's a great book for the new year, uh, Luciana. The Jesus Style by Gail Irwin. I don't expect Gail Irwin's listening to this, but if somehow he is, God bless you, Gail. I love you, brother. Uh, Facebook question from Ron Ramsey says, uh, do you think we can receive a refreshing of the Holy Spirit? Ron, absolutely I do. In Ephesians chapter five, it says that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And 
uh, I'm not an expert or have much familiarity at all, to be honest, with the New Testament Greek, but I know how to read the people who are and who do have great expertise in it. That phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is given in the sense that it should be a continual experience. I think that we should pray every day, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Now, not in the sense that we weren't filled before. We don't say, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit with a sense that we deny that we've been filled before, but with the sense that we want to receive his anew every day. We want to receive that filling of the Holy Spirit. We are, as some people have put it, leaky vessels that need a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. So Ron, I would recommend to you uh, that every day you make it a concerted part of your prayer. Lord, I want to be filled with the Spirit today. I want to walk in the Spirit today. That's a great prayer to pray coming into the year 2022. And now our last question for the day from Jesper. God bless you, Jesper. See you soon. A couple of weeks or so, several weeks, a couple of months maybe. Um, Jesper says, um, Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 14 mentions apostles being a gift to the church from Jesus. Are there apostles today? Jesper, I would give it to you this way. Um, It depends how you define apostle. If someone wants to define apostle as uh, the foundational leaders of the church who have the authority to command the church universal and God used to relay scripture to the church, no, there are not apostles like that on the earth today. And there have not been since the first century. If somebody wants to say, um, God has used certain people to be leaders, not only of congregations, but of movements, to be special ambassadors, because really that's what the word apostle means. It means an ambassador. That God has given certain ambassadors to the church throughout the generations and perhaps today in the present age. Okay, there's some allowance for that. Here's my problem with it, Jesper. I gotta say, I've never seen somebody take the title apostle or... uh receive the title apostle. Maybe they don't take it, but other people call them apostle. I've never seen that happen without some weirdness involved. Look, I've had people try to convince me that I'm an apostle. No, thank you. I think anybody who truly was an apostle would have the sense to not use that title. Things get weird when the apostle comes in. And I don't mean weird in the sense of crazy, but it's like a power move, an authority move. I'm an apostle. You must call me apostle such. That makes things weird either for the person who's receiving the title or for the person who's giving the title. So if somebody wants to make the argument that there are in a lesser sense apostles today, not in the foundational New Testament sense, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that God built the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And we have the apostolic record right here. It's funny. I don't think I'm an apostle, not by any means, but I believe that I have apostolic authority when I'm preaching from the word of God, because this is the record of the apostles and prophets. 
So not in that sense. If somebody wants to, to declare a lesser sense, I think it could be true. But at the same time, I avoid the naming of it because it just seems to make things off kilter. It'll cause strangeness either in the people calling the one uh, uh, apostle or the one who receives the title apostle. That's my take on it, Jesper. Maybe we can talk about it more over a cup of coffee in a couple months. All right, everybody. Again, I want to say thank you to our YouTube audience, our Facebook audience, our TWR360 audience. And I want to say, if you would like a ministry report as to what is going on, what God did in 2021 through Enduring Word, the ministry that I'm associated with that produces these free Bible resources, and if you would like uh, some prayer requests for the coming year, plans and prayer requests, go to the YouTube channel, look up on our YouTube channel, uh, the ministry report for 2021. We just did it just this last Tuesday. It should be easy to find. Look it up. I'd love for you to see that video. And I'd love for you to be praying for the work that we do at Enduring Word. Uh, our heart is to distribute free quality Bible resources, my Bible commentary and other resources. Uh, absolutely free of cost, no ads on the websites, no paid ads, and distributed broadly all over the world in many languages. I appreciate your prayers in helping to make that happen. God bless you today. So glad you could join me. Have a blessed and wonderful new year. And God willing, and if we live, we'll do this next Thursday. Get together for that. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.